When disaster strikes, chaos is often the result. Physicians and other emergency medical personnel often make the difference between life and death. What's it like for them, and how do they feel afterwards? This is a special report on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me is Dr. John Hick, Medical Director for Emergency Preparedness at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis and first responder to the scene of the Minneapolis Bridge Collapse. Dr. Hick and I are discussing both his professional and his personal feelings about being involved in emergency preparedness. Dr. Hick, welcome to Reach MD. Thanks, Bruce. Tell us what your role was in the Minneapolis Bridge Collapse. My primary role during the bridge collapse was to respond to the scene as an emergency medical services physician, one of the on-call physicians for the ambulance services in the, in the Minneapolis area. We have that on a rotating schedule, and at the same time, in a major incident, all of those physicians are notified. Myself and the other physician at HCMC, uh, Jeff Ho, that responded are both on the collapse rescue team for the state as well, and so I was also responding in, in that capacity. And then I also am medical director for emergency preparedness at HCMC. CMC. So I have helped uh, the emergency department with their emergency response plans and, and training. So, but I wasn't at the hospital uh, during the victim receipt phase of, of this incident. And when you're not doing emergency preparedness or responding to a disaster, what's your regular physician life like? I'm an ER doc, and uh, HCMC sees about 100,000 patients a year in the emergency department, so we're an extremely busy urban level one trauma center. I work about two and a half shifts a week in the emergency department, and then the rest of my time is administrative uh, on emergency preparedness, and some of that time is subcontracted to the Minnesota Department of Health as well for emergency preparedness planning. Was this the worst disaster or tragedy you'd ever been involved in? This is the worst tragedy that I've been involved with at home here. Um, I've been involved in, on a more peripheral and administrative level with responses to Katrina and other situations, but this was the first time that my boots have been on the ground uh, directly in the middle of an incident uh, unfolding like this. And it was reassuring to me that my training allowed me to concentrate on what I needed to concentrate on. Uh, it was challenging in the sense that I think all of us who are involved with responses to these type of disasters are emotionally and sometimes physically affected by these for days or weeks afterwards. And, and I feel very fortunate as a responder and not a victim that I think, you know, what we experience is quite minor compared to, you know, what those patients and victims go through. And what do you do for that? How do you take care of yourself after something like this? I think the main thing is just to, you know, use the usual mechanisms that you use in, in our field for coping with stress. And, and that may be exercise, it may be talking with coworkers, it may be talking with family, even just giving your kids a hug uh, is a very, very powerful thing um, in, in the immediate days after something like this. And just knowing that, you know, that the difficulty with sleep, the difficulty with eating, those sorts of things will get better over the subsequent few days. And, and they're a natural part of the body's uh, response to stresses like this. So, you know, you rely on your usual coping mechanisms and only if the symptoms would begin to interfere with, you know, your daily life would you need to, you know, seek out uh, professional assistance, although, you know, participating in debriefings and in other, you know, structured situations to help get some of those feelings out can be very helpful. And if an individual, you know, wishes to do that, I think that needs to be encouraged and those opportunities need to be available. But usually, you know, these symptoms will work themselves out over a matter of days to weeks. Um, it's just a natural part of, of the body processing what it's been exposed to. As a physician, what was the most satisfying 
professional outcome from this disaster response? I think the most satisfying professional outcome was just that the system worked the way that we had set it up to work, that good incident management principles were applied, that resources were available, that no patient went without the medical care that they needed. I think we always tend to be fairly self-critical, and uh, I, I wish that we could have done a little better job with some of the details of the medical care at the scene you know, whether that was administering morphine or maybe doing a better job doing splinting and things like that. But you are a little bit captive to the resources that are are immediately in front of you. And when you're in a response mode like that, the main thing, especially with a very hazardous scene, is to get those patients off of that scene and get them to definitive medical care. And so even though I'm a little bit regretful in some cases that we, you know, couldn't have given some morphine because we hadn't pre-planned to have some of that available in additional doses and all, uh, I think in the end, the response was successful, and I'm very satisfied that we were able to care for the victims the way that we did. I think we were also very, very lucky uh, in that the injuries and the scope of the tragedy wasn't any worse than it was. So it's about two weeks out from the disaster. What's happening there right now? What's the process going on? You know, honestly, it's an interesting thing. I mean, we were back to daily operations by the next day. There wasn't really any lasting impact of this on the healthcare system, and the bridge was all cordoned off, and and responders couldn't go back down there anymore, and you couldn't even really see it. And and it wasn't that it was out of sight, out of mind, but uh, you tended to shift gears pretty rapidly back into uh, daily operations mode. Um, Certainly within the first days after the event, we organized hot washes and critical incident stress management uh, debriefing in addition to uh, structured issue identification and and analysis debriefings, generated corrective action plans for a response for the hospital and and how we can do things better and initiated planning as far as correcting some of those things. Um, We're doing the same thing for emergency medical services here coming up in a few days uh, to really go through on a minute-by-minute basis and figure out how we can do things better, providing continued support for uh, body recovery operations that the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office and and U.S. Navy are performing. so there are some, you know, ongoing efforts, but by the next morning, you know, really the EMS services and hospitals were back to daily operations footing, which was good. If you've just tuned into this special report, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Hick, first emergency response physician on the scene at the Minneapolis Bridge disaster. So there's a lot of healthcare providers involved in a rescue effort like this. How do they communicate back with their families so that people know that they're safe? That's a great question. We had some trouble with cell phone systems being intermittently available during this just because of the amount of traffic um, that was on them. And, you know, I think that anybody who didn't know where their loved one was, uh, was, you know, at least in the back of their mind, concerned that that they could have been on that bridge. That bridge carries 141,000 cars a day, or at least did before it collapsed. It was the busiest bridge in the state of Minnesota. From personal experience, um, I didn't realize that this was going to be as as big a deal, you know, nationally as it was. Uh, so my wife, who was in Wausau, you know, was very concerned that I might have been on the bridge, or you know, what was my safety as a rescuer? And it, because of the other things that I was dealing with at the time, and and the cell phone, you know, issues, it really didn't occur to me to give her a call until a couple hours, you know, into things. And you know, she said, next time, I really want to know earlier that you're safe. And so I said, I can understand that. Um, I think there is a, a big 
advantage to take a couple seconds to just make a phone call if you feel like um, your loved ones wouldn't know that you were safe to try to somehow let them know that, hey, you're okay and you're doing your job. This started around 6 o'clock p.m. What had you been doing prior to that during this day? Actually, I had had a series of meetings, and then I had come home, and I had been working on an emergency preparedness grant application, actually, for the couple hours preceding the alert going out. So it was a pretty pretty routine administrative day, and then um, all hell broke loose. And how late were you up on that same day or the next morning doing this work? Well, we were at the incident site of the hospital until about midnight, and then I came home, and, and quite honestly, that's when I you know, had a, the first chance to actually sit down and watch the news and see some of the images and hear some of the stories, and, and that was a bit overwhelming, and so I didn't sleep very well that night. And then the next day is when we had to deal with sort of the secondary disaster, which was the media requests for interviews and, and just dealing with um, you know a lot of the media issues, and that was a full day in itself. And then I was scheduled to work actually that night uh, again, and, and fortunately my boss rounded up a moonlighter to cover that shift, which I was extremely grateful for because I really had not slept and, and really didn't sleep well for the next couple of days after that either. So, You mentioned the media. What were the things that were helpful about the media? What kind of hindrance were they? Well, the media was very interested in trying to be of help, especially early on, and we were able to get some messages out to folks um, that were somewhat helpful. I will say that either because of miscommunication or just erroneous uh, communication, there were some messages that went out, such as, you know, please go to the hospitals to donate blood, uh, which was not accurate and, in fact, you know, could have had the potential to be really problematic. And then also a request for medically trained professionals to respond to the scene, which is not a good idea. Yeah. I I won't say any circumstances, but under most circumstances, that's not advisable. If you can be there within a couple of minutes and it's safe for you to respond to that scene, then your skills may be put to use. Anything beyond that, most of the time, um, there's enough trained responders available and and your skills are better practiced in in your usual hospital or clinic setting. So the media was was helpful in some ways, not so helpful in others. I think what what we did uniformly hear back from the public information officers was was that they really were understaffed early on and what they really needed was one of them to be working on, and in this particular, in the first hour of the incident, one of them to be working on meeting media requests and getting information out and developing talking points, and at least one or two others just be watching the major media and identifying erroneous or uh, problematic information that needed to be corrected and correcting that information. So the PIOs, the public information officers, really felt that they needed additional assistance early on to try to stamp out some of the information that, that potentially could have hindered the rescue efforts. And besides the changes in the public information officer response, what other two or three things are you going to change based on this disaster? We're going to change the in-hospital radio system that we use, which was not uh, robust enough and um, had some issues with it. We're going to change the identification of our internal phone lines on our hospital phones um, so that it's more clear that that is a designated internal line as our switchboards jammed up pretty quickly during the incident. Part of that in relation to, again, a media message that, that families seeking family members should call HCMC, and we tried to get messages out quickly that they should call the Family Support Center that had been set up at a nearby Holiday Inn instead, Uh, but our switchboards were jammed uh, pretty continuously for an hour or so. 
So we're going to look at some changes there. We're also going to look at some changes in how we call our staff back. Uh, our alpha paging system worked, but we're going to work uh, the groups a little bit differently and, and do some pre-scripted messaging. And we also really recognize the need to be able to send out SMS messages to cell phones, which is not something our system currently is capable of. But um, quite honestly, a lot of even my colleagues that are supposed to be on pager all the time, at home, their pager is likely in a briefcase or a purse or something, and yet they still have their personal cell phone on their person. And if that can be reached with an SMS message, uh, that may be their gateway towards getting them good information. Disasters strike when we least expect them, and often chaos is a natural progression. How does this chaos affect the personal and professional lives of the physicians and other emergency management personnel that respond to the scene? I want to thank our guest, Dr. John Hick, Medical Director for Emergency Preparedness at Hennepin County Medical Center, for helping us understand his role in the bridge collapse in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. You've been listening to this special report on the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.